If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Hollywood has set the cultural agenda for America and the wider world for more than a hundred years, and it's produced some of the greatest and most glamorous stars of the 20th century. So what's the secret to its success? Spencer Mizzen sat down with Mark Glancy, Professor of Film History at Queen Mary University of London, to answer your questions on Hollywood history for our latest Everything You Want to Know episode. Now, Mark, everyone's heard of Hollywood and thus they've been living on Mars for the last few decades, but they might not know a great deal about its origins. So I thought I'd start with the following two questions, both submitted on social media. They are... Why did the movie industry originally move to Hollywood, i.e. why was the area so attractive to filmmakers? That's from Robert Keynes on Facebook. And also, I've got the question, what did Hollywood look like before the film industry moved there? And that's from Jess Dinning on Instagram. 
Well, they're both really, they're great questions because um, we have to remember Hollywood was so far flung from the rest of the United States uh, at the turn of the century. Um, Los Angeles was a small city then, and it was several days traveling time uh, from the East Coast. Um, so it was quite a quite a big move to go to go somewhere like Los Angeles. And Hollywood was just a tiny suburb of Los Angeles, about eight miles uh, further west uh, from Los Angeles. It was a village with several several homes uh, around 1907 I think it, it got a hotel people liked to take the the train west and go to see the area because the area was beautiful uh, it had it had mountains uh, it was near the sea it was warm um, uh, this beautiful valley floor uh, when you see when you see old pictures of it 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 does look like a kind of paradise, uh, and it, it it brings to mind the Journey Mitchell song. You know, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot because it's uh, it's so paved over now. Uh, but that's why the filmmakers went out there. They they found a place where they could film where there was plenty of space, um, and they could they could film in the mountains. There was a desert across the mountains. Uh, there was uh, the ocean, of course, um, and so it made a great place to film outdoors on location as as many films were made then um and um there was there was another reason slightly shadier reason that a lot of uh movie making equipment a lot of the production equipment was under patent at the time uh and the patents uh meant that you had to you had to pay to use the machinery um and going out to the west coast meant that you could dodge dodge some of those payments uh so uh some of the some of the more strapped filmmakers were were eager to be far away from the east coast uh where um a lot of the, the film studios were then um, and get, come out to Hollywood. So who were the main drivers behind this move? Well, there had been, there were films made in Hollywood uh, before uh, 19, 1913. Uh, a few short films, D.W. Griffith went out to Hollywood uh, sometime in the, in the first decade of the century and made short films. But the, the really big change came when Cecil B. DeMille uh, in 1913, made a western called *The Squaw Man*, uh, and he'd been he'd been trying to make that on, on other western locations and, and not having any luck um, with with the weather and and the scenery and all the rest of it. So he he heard about Hollywood and he went out there and made this this very popular western, and that really started. Uh, well, he's he. he continued to make films in Hollywood, but it's, it, it gave other filmmakers the idea too. And it very rapidly developed into the filmmaking capital of the United States and indeed the world. Could you paint, paint a picture of what the film industry, especially what the American film industry was like at this time? Disorganized. Uh, it was nowhere near as centralized as as it became in Hollywood. So that's one of the the big changes that happens when uh, the film studios move out west and become uh, um, establish facilities uh, in and around Hollywood. Um, you very rapidly get the the industry matures uh, and becomes much more centralized uh, around 
several companies, not just a few companies, but several companies. But before that, uh, it was a much more disparate and spread out industry. So you had you had a lot of the main players move into this area at this at a similar time. Is that right? That's right. A lot of the main players moved to the area, and they're very successful there. And that and that success builds on itself. More filmmakers come. Uh, the companies get bigger. They buy other companies. Uh, they merge, uh, and that's why. Um, within within ten years of, of Cecil B. DeMille uh, coming out to Hollywood, uh, you pretty much have the major studios, all those names that we we know so well, in place uh, and uh, and making films uh, and making a lot of money. Now, the next question, which also was submitted on social media from Sarah Damry is, did the transition from silent film to talkies really destroy many actors' careers? So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what when the switch from silent to talkies occurred and who were the main stars of the silent film era? The switch from silent films to talkies uh, really got going with the jazz singer, uh, a Warner Brothers film released in 1927, starring Al Jolson, in which Jolson sings. There's not a lot of talking in the film. It's it's known as the first talkie. There's not actually a lot of talking in it. Al Jolson was a singer, and and he sang, um, and it was a huge success. And that began a process of the, the process of transitioning to uh, talking films. But it took a while because you have to remember that every Every cinema had to be wired for sound, had to be wired for this new technology. Uh, many cine- cinemas, smaller cinemas, might have only had a piano that they played while the silent films were on. So every cinema uh, that's going to show Hollywood films uh, around the world has to be wired for sound. And so it was a process that took um, three, three years. And is it true, did it destroy some actors' careers? Well, I mean, there, there, there's, um, there's truth and there's myth in this. Uh, I think the myth is perpetuated by Singing in the Rain, uh, a, a, wonderful, a wonderful film, a very funny film. And uh, this, this idea that Lena Lamont, with her screeching voice, um, was, was typical of silent stars who couldn't uh, survive the uh, transition to talkies. And there's a, little bit of, there's a little bit of truth in that. There were some silent stars whose voices did not suit their image. Um, And when you think about it, back in the silent days, uh, when you never heard a star, you can imagine them having any accent uh, that you wanted them to have, so that they could be anything. And um, it it could be a, a bit of a problem when you heard them for the first time and thought, that's not, that's not what I imagined. Um, so it did, it did ruin a few careers, but it wasn't the kind of uh, overwhelming change uh, that it's sometimes portrayed to be, and certainly that Singing in the Rain portrays it to be. And who are the main stars of this era then? Are there many names that people would recognise now? Um, Douglas Fairbanks was one of the great stars of this period. Uh, he, and another was his, was his wife, Mary Pickford. They, they were probably Hollywood's first power couple. Uh, they were, um, really prominent, really popular stars who, who made films mostly, mostly separately. Um, Charlie Chaplin, I'm sure most people have heard of still wonderful comedian. Uh, and, uh, he was one of the biggest, um, 
I suppose people have heard of Rudolf Valentino, uh, the the ultimate uh, Latin lover, uh, and also a, uh, I think, a very good, very good actor too. Now then, our next question comes from Brendan Mitchell, and this was submitted on Facebook, and he wants to know. What was unique about the golden era of film? What made it golden? And I wonder, just to elaborate on that a little, could you just talk a little bit about the golden era of film? When are we talking about and why did cinema become so much more popular during this period? I think the golden era lasts from the 1920s when uh, the Hollywood studio system is is first in place uh, and into the 1950s when it begins to disintegrate. Um, it was a system that was very much based around stardom, selling films through stars who were very carefully um, manufactured and their image was maintained very carefully. Uh, It was very much to do with glamour um, and romance. uh, And I think censorship plays a big role in it as well because Hollywood was heavily censored at that time. uh, And that meant that films didn't weren't as sort of gritty perhaps disturbing violent as they became later and so there's a, there's a kind of glamorous aura around them during this during this period of the studio system uh which is also a period of heavy censorship and how did the technology play into this i guess evolving technology really 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 helped the supercharge the growth of hollywood at this time the fact that you know, these productions could be shown all over what vast waves of the world. The technology uh, was, of course, important. And uh, by having uh, the industry in Hollywood, uh, in and around Hollywood, uh, you, you develop a, a, film, a film culture and a group of technological experts who help to advance filmmaking through this time. And I think the in addition to the technology, uh, it's important to remember the technicians, because one one thing that happens with with Hollywood is one really important thing that happens with Hollywood is you get technicians coming from all over the world. It very rapidly becomes the international film capital, uh, and so uh, you have um, Russian filmmakers, German filmmakers, French filmmakers, British filmmakers, of course, all. Uh, from all the film capitals in Europe, people want to go to Hollywood and work there, and they bring with them uh, the technical knowledge and expertise from their from their own countries. And who are the biggest stars of this period, from say um, the late nineteen twenties until just after the Second World War? The biggest stars of of that that really crucial period, um, probably Clark Gable, I would say, is the the biggest. Uh, male star and and one who uh was was just extraordinarily popular um greta garbo uh the uh the swedish uh star who who came to hollywood and became uh very very popular betty davis joan crawford gary cooper and of course the wonderful cary grant uh as well um all very popular and sustained careers over over decades as well now a question is um is asked quite a lot on internet search queries, is kind of related to this. And to what extent did Hollywood project American culture into the wider world? I mean, would you say it was a, a kind of tool of soft power for America? I think Hollywood absolutely was a tool of soft power. Um, when you think about it, 
audiences around the world are so much more familiar with the United States uh, than they would be without Hollywood. Uh, They know how Americans live, the kind of houses they live in, the sort of foods they eat, the cars they drive, all the products they use. And that's, of course, great marketing for American products. Uh, Hollywood films um, tend to be um, patriotic. uh, And so there's a a sense in which... uh, the rest of the world knows about America's achievements uh, and what, what makes Americans proud. So there, there is this side to it that seems very um, pro-American uh, and very much a tool of soft power, encouraged by the U.S. Department of Commerce, by the way, a, uh, uh, a government agency that made sure that, uh, from the beginning, made sure that Hollywood films could be shown around the world because they knew that uh, trade would would follow the film, as it was said, trade follows the film. Um, But I think there's a flip side to it, that most Americans wouldn't say Hollywood represents them well. Most Americans would resent that idea and say that Hollywood was in some ways un-American. Back in the golden era, I think people would say Hollywood was un-American because it was, was decadent or immoral. They would look to the scandals uh, in Hollywood and say, that's, that's not America and that's not projecting American values. Whereas now, of course, it's, it's elitism and the idea that everyone in Hollywood's left wing uh, that makes it seem un-American to some. And when you say Hollywood films are shown across the world, I mean, was it literally all corners of the earth? Was it truly global? It was uh, truly global, apart from... The Soviet Union. The Soviets uh, banned Hollywood films, um, and uh, that meant that whenever Hollywood needed a villain, <laughs> they made them Russian because <laughs> they didn't have to worry about offending the Russians. The Russians weren't paying customers, but they were they were wary of offending other countries because m- most other countries and the industrialized countries uh, did show films and did import American films. So things happened along the way. When the Nazis came to power, they gradually uh, banned American films. They sort of weaned their cinemas off American films over a period of years. But certainly by the time, uh, by by 1941, there were no American films, no new American films showing in Germany. And here's another internet search query, and that is, what was Hollywood's role in the two world wars? How was its output shaped by the conflicts? With the First World War, um, you have to remember that America wasn't, wasn't in it for, for as long as America was in the Second World War. So I don't think there was quite the same degree of mobilization of the film industry. The film industry wasn't as organized uh, and there wasn't the kind of forward planning uh, that would happen with the Second World War. So when I think of the First World War and Hollywood, I tend to think of the way Hollywood portrayed the war in retrospect. In the, in the 1920s in particular, you think about All Quiet on the Western Front, the big parade, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, these, these rather grand, um, uh, somewhat anti-war films that were made after the war. Um, the Second World War was a different story because um, it, it was seen coming for, for a long period of time. So even before the war, even before the United States was in the war, the United States entered in 1941. For a few years before that, Hollywood was already making anti-Nazi films and trying to raise the alarm in America about uh, Nazi Germany. When the United States entered the war in 1941, 
the government was very keen to use Hollywood as a propaganda tool and establish an agency in Hollywood uh, to advise on how to make propaganda films. Uh, so there, there's far more films being made during the war about the war in the Second World War. So did the government have quite a lot of, of say of, of what was produced in Hollywood during wartime? Yes. Um, it, the agency was called the Office of War Information uh, in the Second World War, and it had offices in Hollywood uh, that read scripts before they were filmed and saw and then saw the films before they were released uh, and advised the studios on how to uh, portray war issues. Did that cause any friction or were, were the studios in general, quite happy to go along with that. That, of course, caused a lot of friction uh, because they, they, uh, the Office of War Information did not like the kind of fantastic plots uh, and, and far-fetched ideas that, you know, are a normal part of, of Hollywood films. And uh, they, um, they were continually telling Hollywood, no, don't, don't do that. Uh, don't exaggerate. Don't, um, don't make it worse than it is. Um, and they were also... Uh, they were quite keen to prevent what they called hate pictures. Uh, they didn't want to rile up hatred towards towards Germany in particular. They they insisted that there should be um, the 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 bad Germans should be identified as Nazis, but there could also be good Germans who resisted the Nazis. So they sort of walked a tightrope with that. But it, with regards to Japan, uh, they they didn't balk at anything. They allowed these. Um, you know, remarkably racist portrayals of the of the Japanese, which when you when you go back and watch films from this era, it is it is quite shocking to see how how blatantly racist uh, they were. So in that respect, then Hollywood is incredibly powerful. I mean, what about a huge impact on public opinion in this time? Yes, and I, I think Washington recognized that, and that's that's why they were so eager to go out there uh, and eager to in, intervene. Um, films were seen by a lot of people, but also a lot of people who didn't read newspapers or magazines or pay attention to the news. So it was a way of, of, of reaching further into the population. And that takes us on quite nicely to the next question, which was submitted by Gareth Taylor on Facebook. And he asked, what kind of impact did McCarthyism have on Hollywood? McCarthyism had a, a terrible influence on, on Hollywood. And I think we can we can think about that from on an individual level that there were there were individuals whose whose careers were ruined um, in in some cases uh, simply because they signed uh, petitions in the 1930s uh, and um, they they lost their careers or they continued working but under pseudonyms you know there's a uh, I think Dalton Trumbo is probably the most famous. Uh, of the screenwriters who, who continued to work, but had to do it under a pseudonym uh, and therefore uh, didn't get paid <laughs> or got paid a, a fraction of what he, uh, he would have been paid before. Um, that's the individual level on a, on a larger level. It just McCarthyism made Hollywood more timid. It was afraid to be, to be seen, to be dramatizing anything controversial uh, so from the late 40s into the 50s, films become just a little blander uh, and just a little safer uh, than I think they would have been without that. And certainly that uh, there's, a, there's a period 
right as the war ends, when some really interesting films are made that, that are socially realist, engaging with uh, contemporary issues and events, and that McCarthyism shuts that down. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You can find terror in the most mundane places. Uh, and and um, it's, uh, Psycho has, has many, many, many children. Uh, and, and horror continues to be such a, um, such a popular genre. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So when we're talking about McCarthyism, are we specifically talking about communism? And anything that could be construed as promoting communism was basically in the crosshairs. Is that right? McCarthyism was about um, communism, but it was also uh, anything that was seen to be anti-American. Um, so if, you're, if your listeners know the film The Best Years of Our Lives... Uh, which was a film about um, three veterans coming coming home after the war to a, a middle American town. Um, and I, I show it to my students every year. And it's very hard from our perspective today to see anything subversive in it. Uh, but it was regarded then by the right wing, by the by the people who supported McCarthyism as being uh, a subversive film because it questions uh, big business and banks and doesn't doesn't portray them in an absolutely favorable light. So it was anything that seemed to question uh, 
capitalism in any way, shape, or form, question big business, uh, and that it didn't seem to be overwhelmingly patriotic. Any anything that that didn't that didn't seem patriotic was labelled subversive. Would I be right in saying that Charlie Chaplin was was caught up in this as well? Yes, Chaplin uh, had made The Great Dictator in 1940. So before America was at war, Chaplin made The Great Dictator, which was a a wonderfully funny lampooning film of Hitler. Uh, And so he... He was one of the people in Hollywood who was who was eager to use the film industry uh, to expose Nazism and, and in this case Hitler in particular uh, before America entered the war. And he makes a he makes a plea uh, at the end of the film for for peace and for uh, an international uh, an international order that will bring about bring about long lasting peace. Well, after the war. Uh, that was regarded as what they what they called premature anti-fascism. So it was okay to be it was okay to be against fascism during the war, but he was a premature anti-fascist. Uh, and that the speech he gives at the end of the film was regarded as very left-wing. Uh, and so he was he was really hounded by uh, the McCarthyites and, uh, eventually left, left the United States. I think it was in 1952. He left and, and did not return. I mean, that must have been a pretty big deal. I mean, Charlie Chaplin was a a global star, wasn't he? He was, uh, I mean, his, his career was in its, in its autumn years. Uh, he was he wasn't making very many films at that stage of his career, and they weren't. The Great Dictator was a huge success, but subsequently uh, his films were not that successful. Okay, the next question we've had submitted uh, this is on Facebook from Kira Boyle, and her question is: How did Hollywood influence perceived beauty standards in women across the Western world? When you look at the credits of, of Hollywood films, you can see that they often have uh, the um, makeup and beauty companies are, are credited. Uh, when you look at Hollywood fan magazines from the from the golden age in particular, Hollywood stars are often advertising the the makeup and hairstyling products. Uh, and I think I think this has been part of the strategy all along was to. Um, well, in a way, celebrate artifice, that, that beauty and glamour are wrapped up in artifice and you, it's something you need to obtain. It's something you need to work towards and to uh, uh, style yourself with, of course, consumer products. Uh, and um, that's, that's been the case since, since the beginning. And of course, it's, it's accentuated in, in Hollywood films and in publicity shots through, through lighting and, and uh, dress as well. And so when you see a star like Greta Garbo uh, in her Swedish films and in her Swedish publicity, um, she, she looks like a perfectly normal, attractive young woman. Uh, when she gets to Hollywood, they put her through a process uh, which involves, she was um, told to lose a lot of weight, and she did. Her hair was restyled, her makeup was redone, um, she, was, she was lit in very careful in particular ways and she she looks like a completely different person um very glamorous very beautiful but also quite artificial and i guess people ordinary people around the world took their cue from 
from the image that she was portraying. Yes, and um, bought the products that promised them that <laughs> that uh, the promised them that this this was obtainable. Right. Next question is from Luke Gulchi, and this was submitted on Instagram, and that is: When was the Hollywood sign renovated? Yes, it's an, it's an absolutely iconic sign, and so it's it's funny to learn um, that it was put up in 1923 as a as a temporary sign, and it was it was just made of wood, uh, and it was put up. It actually the sign at that point read Hollywood Land because Hollywood Land was a subdivision that was being was being built, and this was the advertisement for it. Um, and the the sign was meant to be up for about a year, and people. People got used to it, uh, and it and it stayed up, but it gradually disintegrated, and, and some some of the letters fell over, uh, and so it, it it went through a lot of a lot of problems. And uh, the uh, Los Angeles um, Hollywood was part of Los Angeles by this time; it had been incorporated into Los Angeles. They tried to uh, fix it uh, several times. They they would try and fix it, but eventually. Um, in the late 1970s, they had to replace the the old wooden structure completely uh, and make a make a steel structure uh, and a steel structure set in concrete. So you know the letters would stop blowing over and uh, um, they would survive the wind and and uh, the occasional rain. Um, so at that point, the sign became much more fixed and secure. Um, there were several points in in its history prior to that when it it didn't read much of anything because the letters had fallen over. I mean, I've never been to Hollywood. I mean, how impressive is it to see it in person, as it were? It's it's very impressive, and uh, when you when you fly into Los Angeles, you you pass it, uh, and you you know you've arrived. You know you know where you are, uh, and uh, it yeah, it's 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 like any city's iconic landmarks. Um, you you want to see it and you, you feel like you're there when you've seen it. Right, now, um, it's another um, popular query on the internet and, and, and that is related to the 70s and 80s blockbusters. I mean, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the rise of these blockbusters. I'm talking the likes of Star Wars, Jaws, Indiana Jones. I mean, what, to what extent did they prove a shot in the arm for Hollywood? And how did they represent a kind of a change in direction from what had gone before? There was this transitional moment in Hollywood in the late 60s and early 70s as um, an older generation of filmmakers uh, weren't doing very well, and television had had pretty much taken the audience from Hollywood. Uh, so there's a kind of financial crisis going on, and that opened up a space for a younger generation of filmmakers to come in. The Spielbergs, George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, they come in, and at first they're making quite low budget, interesting, experimental films. Experimental is probably an exaggeration, but it's like if, you, if you've seen American Graffiti, for example, the George Lucas film, uh, it's it's quite adventurous in the way it tells its its story. Uh, and what's what's odd about this is they come in, they're, they're this new generation, and they're they're doing uh, they're making uh, new and innovative films, new kinds of films, 
Um, but when they become successful, they then go for the big blockbuster projects like Jaws, like Star Wars, like Indiana Jones. And the industry then goes from this experimental, almost indie filmmaking phase into uh, a preoccupation with blockbusters and the idea that the more money you spend on a film, <laughs> the better it is. Uh, and that every film should speak to an audience, uh, a mass audience, uh, that, you know, and its opening weekend has to be fantastic so that everybody feels as though they need to go see it. Um, and it's, it's a real change in Hollywood and, and um, not necessarily one for the better aesthetically. So was I mean was box office box office numbers money made was it more important at that point than ever before would you say Yes box office became increasingly important in the sense of the opening weekend So what you had back in the the golden era was that films would be released very very gradually they would they would open in in big cities and then spread out. Uh, and so films had a long time to find an audience. It, it may be that they didn't do well in the big cities, but they did well in the small towns and, and uh, out in the regions. Uh, so there were, there were lots of different kinds of markets for, for films, and they had a, they had a better chance. Uh, as the emphasis on blockbusters grew, uh, it, it really became all about the, the opening weekend. Uh, and films could could die a death very quickly if they didn't immediately find a big audience. Just on that note, how would you define that? I mean, what is a blockbuster? How, how would you define the blockbuster? A blockbuster is um, probably a very expensive film, a film with high production values, uh, uh, a concept film, a film which the the, the story can be quite quite easily relayed, uh, and. Um, one that reaches the largest possible audience. Sure. And, and how much of an impact did special effects have it at this point? It, it seems to me that they did, but I mean, it, 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 was it more than ever before? Now, I think there's always been an emphasis on special effects in Hollywood, and that's uh, one, of, one of the things that Hollywood has done so well. Um, so I... I I wouldn't say that's definitely a part of it. I mean, if we if we think back to uh, it's it's well known now all the problems they had with the shark in Jaws, <laughs> the shark just just kept breaking, uh, and at some points the shark doesn't really look that that realistic. And at some point Spielberg realized we should look through the shark's eyes rather than look at the shark because it's it's much more effective. Um, so uh, special effects have always been important. I wouldn't I wouldn't pin that on the seventies in particular. So could you give us an example of one, say, in the earlier decades, the 20s, 30s, or 40s, which is a real leap forward in terms of special effects? In 1935 or 36, there's a film called San Francisco, uh, which uh, depicts the San Francisco, the great San Francisco earthquake at the beginning of the century. Uh, and uh, that was a um, that was a film that amazed people for its special effects. Uh, but remember, there's also that there's also that apocryphal story of uh, audiences um, rushing out of their seats uh, when there's a very, very, very early one real film about the arrival of a train, not about the arrival of a train. It just shows the arrival of a train, uh, and the audience uh, reportedly 
possibly uh, jumped out of their seats. So I, there's always been this idea that film is there to thrill and uh, that any kind of artifice is is okay um, if it's if it's thrilling enough. And, and I think that's always been at the at the heart of the Hollywood ethos. Sure. Now, more recently, how has Hollywood reacted to the the decline in cinema going and the rise in new technologies? I mean, I was about to say though, DVD and Blu-ray. I mean, they're obviously not new anymore. They've they've aged quite a lot, but you know what I mean. And then, of course, there's the advent of myriad digital channels and streaming platforms. I mean, how has Hollywood coped with that? I think Hollywood's coped with that in the same way that it's coped with all the other changes to its business model over the years. Um, uh, remember, there was a time when, in order to see a film, you had to go, you had to go to the cinema that that week or or two that it was that it was playing, and and then you never had the chance again. Then came television. Then came. Uh, showing films on television, uh, seeing films on on planes, uh, getting VHS tapes, and and on and on and on. So, I think these these changes scare the industry in the first instance, and then they think, how can we make money out of this? How how do we use this to our advantage? Uh, and it's it, the trend seems to me that people see more and more films. And uh, that we have more and more outlets to see them. And so these, these are business opportunities to Hollywood and, and they, they find ways of, of working with them. And the pandemic simply accelerated a trend that was already happening, uh, that more and more films were being seen through, through streaming. Uh, and um, I think it probably would have taken another another ten years to get to the point we are now, where some films are, some major films are released uh, through streaming in their first first weekend. That's that's their their only or their primary release. It would have taken longer to get there, but we were headed that way anyway. So it's accelerating something that was going to happen, a bit like working from home, maybe. It's like accelerating exactly, exactly. something that would have happened anyway. The, yeah, the pandemic accelerated so many trends that were that were already in place. Sure. But speaking of Hollywood, I mean, is it as preeminent in the film, global film industry, as it's always been? Is it still the cultural powerhouse it was, say, 40 or 50 years ago, would you say? It is from a business point of view. Uh, but I think what's what we see with uh, Netflix, for example, is uh, the the funding uh, being given out to a wider array of players. So Netflix funds movies and, and shows and programs all around the world because it wants international viewers. Uh, so it's still the uh, business capital. Uh, it's it's still the source of a lot of. Uh, production money, um, but the industry is is uh, not entirely based. The, the international film industry is is not entirely based in Hollywood anymore. Would you say is as cr- creative as it's always been? Yes, I would. I would, um, and uh, perhaps creative in in different ways. Different times call for different ways, uh, but they're you know they're wonderful films being made. And what would you say the future looks like for Hollywood? Is it possible to to predict what's going to happen over the next 20 years? 
I think it's interesting to to speculate, to think about whether we're going to continue to watch films in cinemas, in theaters, uh, whether we're going to continue to gather uh, as, a, as a community, as an audience, uh, and watch films together. Because that can, that can be such a powerful way of watching a film. Uh, and I, I think the, the, the question is, are we going to become so atomized that we're, we're, all, we're all watching uh, at home uh, alone and not having that great experience? Um, there, there will be uh, more and better special effects I'm, I'm sure of that. Uh, we, we, see, we see that coming. And um, to what extent that requires cinema viewing over home viewing remains to be seen. Sure. Now, Mark, I can't let you go without asking you the following two questions. What do you regard as the three most influential Hollywood films in history? And also, who do you regard as the three most influential actors? So I'm mm. putting you on the spot a bit here, but... Yes, I, I feel obliged to say the most influential film of all time is Citizen Kane, uh, because I'm a, I'm a film historian who knows that that is true. Uh, but it's the most <laughs> predictable answer I could possibly give, right? Uh, and um, I mean, it was it was a very very influential film, and uh, if you if you haven't seen it, you should um, you should watch it, and then you'll see you'll see how often uh, other films imitate it. Um, but I don't want to give such a predictable answer, so let me let me choose films by genre, and I'm going to say um, you know fantasy plays such a huge role in film films now, uh, fantasy and adventure. Um, that I'm going to choose The Wizard of Oz as a particularly uh, influential film because fantasy wasn't such a big part of uh, popular films uh, when The Wizard of Oz came out in 1939. And it's so, it, it's so wonderfully made, so imaginative, uh, and you know, still, still shows all the time now. Uh, and you know, its use of color... Um, it's it's invention of new new imaginary lands. It's it's you know it's it's staggering. It's still staggering and um, often often imitated. Um, for the horror genre, I think it has to be Psycho uh, because Psycho was the film uh, that brought it, brought everyday ordinary horror into our lives. So not, not monsters, not Frankenstein, not Dracula, uh, not, not Godzilla, uh, but the, the shower, you know, that you can, you can find terror in the most mundane places. Uh, and, and, um, it's, a psycho has, has many, many, many children, uh, and, and horror continues to be such a, um, such a popular genre. Um, and for comedy, uh, I'm going to say uh, bringing up baby uh, because that was such a wonderful screwball comedy with with Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, uh, and it wasn't the first first screwball comedy, uh, and in fact it wasn't even that popular when it when it uh, was initially released, uh, but it it's showed and showed and showed since then. It's been watched so many times, uh, and it's you know they they meet cute. They go on an adventure together. They gradually fall in love. There's a lot of slapstick comedy. There's a lot of banter, uh, and um, 
it's I think it's what a lot of of, of filmmakers aspire to making a, a comedy that's that's that funny and sharp. Sure. Influential actors. Um, predictably, I'm going to go for Cary Grant uh, because he, as an actor, he his performances seem so natural and uh, understated. Uh, but Cary Grant was an actor who understood that if you raise your eyebrow by uh, a millimeter uh, on screen, that looks like a huge gesture, right? On, on the big screen, uh, that's a huge gesture. So he he really was um, uh, a perfect screen actor in his, his understanding of um, how to look natural and convey thoughts uh, without doing a lot of heavy lifting. Uh, and by contrast, I'm going to, my other one's going to be Marlon Brando, who wasn't the first method actor, but he popularized method acting, that much more physical, emotional uh, style, style of acting. He brought that to Hollywood, uh, and, uh, and particularly in Streetcar Named Desire, which, if you haven't seen, is such a, such a powerful performance by Marlon Brando. Um, and, you know, certainly there's, there's a whole generation of actors, um, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, who belong to the, the Brando school. And then I'm going to go for Betty Davis, uh, because she played such a wide range of roles. And she, uh, starting in the, in the 1930s and, and lasting until the 1960s, uh, she was never afraid to appear unattractive. She played an incredible range of roles. She was everything from uh, Queen Elizabeth to a Cockney waitress and the Southern Belle of Jezebel and uh, on and on and on. Uh, but she she had a style of acting uh, that um, used a lot of gestures, a lot of mannerisms uh, that I think defined what acting was for for a generation uh not not to do with glamour because she wasn't she wasn't beautiful uh but to do with playing a, a wide range of roles and having performance skills that were noticeable and i i would say her influence extends uh to meryl streep and to to kate blanchett uh and and many many others That was Mark Glancy, Professor of Film History at Queen Mary University of London. His most recent book is Cary Grant, The Making of a Hollywood Icon. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.